Good evening. My name's Carl. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Pat, uh, for being a good host. And uh, he got us lost on the way back from dinner, by the way. <laughs> Hope we don't get lost to the airport in the morning. Um, And Dave, thank you for asking me to come and the, the committee for doing everything they do. And congratulations. That was great sobriety countdown. i got to tell you, uh, your newest guy and your oldest old-timer both look like they're in better shape than they're supposed to be. It, uh, you know, for God's sake. Mick, Mick jumps up the stairs and the new guy looks like he was at the gym today, for God's sake. I love being here with, with friends of mine. Uh, John and Cindy have been fantastic. Uh, Mike, what a great talk. And uh, me soon. I love listening to me soon. I can listen to her for days. I do listen to her for days, actually. We're good friends. <laughs> I listen to her a lot. And Terry will be wonderful in the morning, absolutely wonderful. Anyway, my sobriety date is January 21st, 1987. I am 56 years old. I have spent significantly more than half my life as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the most important thing that I uh, will say uh, tonight is that I'm an alcoholic. There is nothing that defines me more as a person than the fact that I'm an alcoholic. I could talk a lot about things I care about, things that are important to me, things that I have uh, succeeded at, things that I have failed at. Oh, I could talk till breakfast to the things I have failed at, drunk or sober. But there's nothing that defines me more than the fact that I'm an alcoholic. And the reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is really very simple. I've got a really bizarre relationship to alcohol. That's why I'm an alcoholic. And this strange relationship that I have with alcohol takes on a few forms. The first part of this strange relationship that I have with alcohol happens when I drink it. Uh, very strange thing happens when I drink booze. The book calls it an allergic reaction. And the book says the symptom of this allergic reaction that I get is what they refer to as the phenomenon of craving. And the best way that I can describe this thing that the book calls the phenomenon of craving in my life is that it seems like whenever I drink booze, the more booze I drink, the thirstier I get. It happens with nothing else, just alcohol. An example of that is they're kind enough to give me this bottle of water. And over the next 45 minutes to three hours that I'm talking with you, I will... Uh... You guys think I'm kidding, right? Yeah. Over the next hour or so that I'm talking with you, I will probably drink half this bottle. I don't know. If my mouth gets dry, I might finish this whole bottle of water. But I can absolutely guarantee you that once I finish that bottle of water, I am not going to go get a case of water and lock myself in the hotel room. Right? There's no chance that at 3 a.m. I'm going to be calling up Pat. Pat, come on, come on, I need another case. I need another case. Come on, dude. It's not going to happen. But if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, this bizarre physical reaction that I get, if that was the only component to my alcoholism, well then, just say no would have wiped out alcoholism, right? Early 80s, Nancy Reagan came out and said, just say no. I would have, and I imagine you would have gone, oh, no. Right? And I would have gone on and lived a happy, successful life just saying no. But I've got this other strange part of my relationship to alcohol. And that happens when I'm not drinking it. You see, even by myself, if I don't drink for a day, a week, or a month, I seem to have this mind that is able to paint a picture 
that makes it okay to take another drink no matter what the pain, humiliation, or suffering was a day, a week, or a month ago. And it never enters into the equation whether it was my pain and humiliation or your pain and humiliation. I could care less. Sooner or later, my mind is able to rationalize and justify my walk back to the next drink at all costs. So therefore, I cannot drink successfully because of this bizarre physical reaction. I can't drink successfully. But at the very same time, I cannot, of and by myself, not drink successfully. I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. It's the ultimate catch-22 we call alcoholism. Because I swear if I could do either one of those two things, I would. Well, actually, I just lied. I have no interest in drinking successfully. Really, that, because that's two drinks and quit. That just makes me nervous. No interest in that when I get honest about it. And I'm going to harp on that physical feature a little bit more because it's really the one thing, bar none, we all have in common. Because we, we actually, you know, and i got to admit, we have a lot of things that are not, we don't have in common. Just travel the world in, the, in alcoholics, just travel the United States. Heck, you can travel different parts of Los Angeles uh, and find diff- completely different types of people in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Every single race, creed, color, religion, type of background, good family, bad family, education, no education. We're all here. In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous is the only place where the bank president, the bank teller, and the bank robber are all right here in the same room. Right? And they're all telling a very different story about what just happened. So our stories are different based upon, you know, our our backgrounds, if you're listening to that part of the story. But we also drink differently than each other. We really do. If you listen closely to stories in Alcoholics Anonymous, you will see we drink differently than each other. An example of that, uh, to illustrate that, let's say we crack open one of these doors and we wheel in this giant cart. And on that cart, we got all, every type of alcohol you love, every type of booze. And, you know, if you're a top-shelf drinker, we got it. Remy Mark, Gavassier. If you're a bottom-shelf drinker, we got it, too. Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> and, ev- and everything in between, right? And we all took a good four or five stiff drinks. Real drinks. No umbrellas in there. No mixer. A good four or five stiff drinks. We'd all be acting very, very differently, right? Over in this corner, we'd have the good time crowd. You know them. Ha, 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 ha. Fun, fun, fun. Talk, 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 talk. Fun, fun, fun. Talk, talk, talk. Add a little methamphetamine, talk a little faster, talk, 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 right? But we have a good time in that corner, right? Over in that corner, we got the sobbers, you know them, they get four drinks. Over in this corner, we got the fighters, you know them. Gotta fight, gotta fight. Over in this corner, bunch of us would be naked. I personally would be visiting each one of the other three corners, trying to find a couple of friends to come over here with me. That's the way I am. So our stories are different based upon what corner we're in, right? The good time crowd over here, they get a lot of DUIs because they're out there driving. Hey, next bar, come on. After hours, we're going to Fred's house. Come on, more booze. Let's go, let's go. Right? So they get, they get arrested a lot. The sobbing corner, they don't get arrested. They don't even leave the damn house. The worst thing they do is drunk dialing you at midnight. Or God forbid these days, drunk Facebooking. It's the worst they do. They don't get arrested. Over in the fighting corner, 
always, their story has probation, parole, mom by, pay, paying the bail bondsman, attorneys, court dates, right? That's where their story's full. Over in this corner, children show up by surprise. <laughs> That'll change your life, drunk or sober. Just, just like that it will. So our stories are different based upon which corner we're drinking in, too. But there's one thing. No matter which corner we're in, there's one thing we would all be doing. We'd all be back at that cart for another drink. And that was so important for me to understand when I was new. That when, I, when I'm trying to identify an Alcoholics Anonymous, I may or may not identify for what, what type of family you came from, what region, what type of race, creed, color, religion you are. But if I listen to what happens to you when you drink, and I listen to what happens to you when on your own you try not to drink, I'm you, you're me, it crosses all boundaries. Uh, I set this relationship up with alcohol that I just described to you uh, right from the get-go when I first started drinking. Uh, I, was, uh, I, I, drank, I started drinking much later than most people in AA. I was 11. That, that actually is very late these days. And we lived in Seattle, and a typical morning uh, for me uh, in seventh grade would be I'd show up early for school, not for study hall or anything, but to meet my new friends at the very edge of the school property, loser's corner. Every school's got a loser's corner. It's about 10 feet off of the school property. It's kind of like the way you're treating this, these six people over here. Just like... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you guys doing all right over there? We'd be, we'd be there smoking, you know, and trying to look cool. We'd also have what I like to call the playground cocktail. That is a jar full of whatever you could rip off out of the parents' liquor cabinet the night before. That jar is scary because none of us have been to bartending school yet. Right? And plus, when you're 12 and you're trying to rip off the parents, you're in a hurry. You're like, right? You're not sitting there reading, a, you know, a menu, how to make a Harvey Wallbanger. You know, you're not, you're throwing whatever you can from there. So that jar we're drinking out of at 7 in the morning, you know, it's whiskey, vodka, cream de mint, vermouth, all in the same jar. Green things are floating around in there. You can imagine six or seven of us, 11, 12-year-olds, choking that down. <coughs> and, of course, it was the early 70s, so we're smoking that commercial pot. Anybody remember that stuff? Four-finger lids, $10 a bag, seeds and stems and the whole bit. It was, even be it was even before Ziploc baggies were invented, when it would just be a regular Glad sandwich bag. And as you'd roll it up, there'd be like nine people spit on it. you like, oh... Were you guys there too? You know that's why you're here. It's at this point that many people that speak in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, they often interrupt themselves and they say something like, I don't mean to offend anybody, but drugs are part of my story. I understand and I know what they're attempting to do. They're, they're trying to protect a very important aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous called singleness of purpose. No doubt about it. Important aspect. But I still think that's a bizarre practice for alcoholics to apologize to other alcoholics for doing drugs while drinking or in between drunks. <laughs> I understand apologizing to police officers and judges <laughs> and people that may still love us, but I, I don't know why we apologize to each other. Anyway. So by the time I'm 14 there in Seattle, I'm the neighborhood drunk, I'm the neighborhood pot dealer. I forgot to mention, but my father was a neighborhood Lutheran minister. Uh, I know. Uh, yeah. he, he did not find anything funny about this at all. My parents, really good people, good people, and they saw something was happening to me. It was obvious. 
uh, that something was going on but didn't know what it was. Uh, but it was obvious. I mean, I'm 14. My hair is down onto my shoulders. My, my, uh, uh, my vocabulary at 14 was, whoa. <laughs> wow. Whoa. Right? That's my, my vocabulary. But you see, my parents didn't understand I'm alcoholic. They blamed my problems on people, places, and things. They thought if we can get him away from that group of kids he's hanging out with, things to get better. And get him out of the public school system, things to get better. See, I'm an alcoholic. My, my problems are not based upon people, place, and things. I'm an alcoholic. My problems are based upon my physical, mental, and spiritual relationship to alcohol. You see, if you change the people, place, and things in somebody's life like mine, all that happens is that I'm loaded with different people. <laughs> in different places, ruining different things. That's all that happens. So by the time I was, uh, I think I was about 17, almost 18, I barely scraped out of the public school system there in Seattle after getting kicked out of the private school system. And my parents decided that Seattle was the problem. And so they sent me 300 miles away to Washington State University. I spent three years at that university on my parents' money. And in that three years, I got almost 10 credits. Not quite, almost. <laughs> at any given time, my grade point average matched my blood alcohol content. <laughs> About a .25. By the time I was 22, this little story I'm about to tell you will let you know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, my father was Swedish. My mother is Icelandic. Therefore, I look like a polar bear. And I don't, and I don't know whether this custom I'm about to tell you about is Scandinavian or whether it's Lutheran. I don't know. But at Christmas time, my parents wouldn't just send out Christmas cards to their friends and relatives. My parents would send out this big, long Christmas letter that said everything the family had been doing that year. And when I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas, and as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, the first paragraph, the first paragraph talked about what my parents had been doing that year. Another impressive year, I'm sure. <laughs> the, the next paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year, and that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in human resources. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this. She saw that. Her hobbies are this, this, and this. She's a very happy young woman. We are very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric, just graduated from Western Washington State University with a degree in marketing. He's now working for a large advertising firm here in downtown Seattle. He loves to golf. He loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named Microsoft. <laughs> they were small at one time. And, and they love to golf together. They love to travel together. He's a very happy young man. We are very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. They were actually being kind. <laughs> it's about this same time, and it really would take till breakfast to describe everything involved in what happened next, because it really was a long, drawn-out, ugly six, eight-month period with a lot of things. But I just like, I'll just describe it by condensing it down to one sentence. A really bad night happened, so I joined the Navy. <clears throat> it, was, it was a bad night. On my way into the Navy, this should concern you, on my way into the Navy, I passed a potential test. It's called the ASVAP test. And this test that I took qualified me to become a nuclear engineer. 
that should concern you, that the, that the United States Navy would have any type of system in place that would even maybe possibly or even remotely allow somebody like me near anything nuclear. <laughs> However, they made me take another test when I showed up at that base for boot camp and I could not pass that particular test. That test is called a urinalysis test is what it's called. <laughs> Never knew how to pass those things. So. I should have been kicked out through a series of events. They kept me in the Navy uh, anyway, but they took away that nuclear status thing. Thank God for you guys. And uh, a year and a half later, I'm a lower rank than when I first came in. Um, it's kind of like this. I, I, it was obvious. I knew I was in the Navy. I mean, all I had to do was survey my surroundings on any, any, any given day. I, by God, I'd notice I'm in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I'm on a big gray ship, and I'm in a uniform. There's no arguing here. I'm in the, I'm in the Navy, no doubt about it. However, that ship would pull into a port. I would leave that ship, and I'd take a drink, and I literally would forget that I'm in the Navy. <laughs> just like the guy in the blue shirt. Yeah, oh, well, just like, that's exactly how I felt. And there's something else happening at this point in my life. At this point in my life, I am 23 years old. I'm 24. I'm 25. And I am triggering these three-day drunks that are absolutely scaring the daylights out of me. Um, I don't know. Before, I, I'd been on three-day runs a lot when I was a teenager, but I'd planned them. I had orchestrated them. I knew I was going, right? But now I'm triggering three-day drunks by accident. And i got to tell you, coming out of these, one of these three-day drunks, uh, 6 a.m. in the morning, foreign country, a large pier going, <clears throat> uh, there was a destroyer here the other day. Uh, I'd been in the Navy approximately two years uh, when this next event happened, and I was, uh, again, uh, coming out of a three-day drunk. I'd started drinking on a Thursday night. It's now Monday morning, and I came to in this little hotel in downtown San Diego. I'm late getting back to the, back to the ship, and, uh, and I'm racing my car down this long straightaway back to the base, and my car is held together by rubber bands. You've heard it before. Our cars die of alcoholism way before we do. And uh, at the front of every Navy base, there's a guard shack, right, where a Marine stands duty. Under normal circumstances, you are supposed to slowly and politely pull your car up to that guard shack. Show him your military ID. He will check the sticker on your car. If everything is in order, he'll allow you to proceed onto the base. This particular morning, I was doing, by this time, one of my tools for living at the end of these three-day drunks was always to save a pint when I knew I'd have to go back to the ship. So I would, I'd always save a pint, and I'd drink a half a pint on my way into the ship, put the other half a pint underneath the ship, underneath my seat. At noontime, I'd run off the ship and drink the other half a pint. It's my way of sliding into Tuesday. And uh, this particular morning, I guess I was paying more attention to getting that half a pint in me than where the car was going. And all of a sudden, my eyes came into focus, and the Marine at the guard shack had his head out of the guard shack like... <laughs> And I was wondering, what's he so excited about? Till I looked down, I'm still going 40 miles an hour. I tried to swerve. I yanked the wheel. This car hit the car hit the median on the right-hand side, flipped over, and bang, right through that guard shack. The Marine did this big dive out of there, quick somersault, back up, weapon drawn. Thank God those guys are in good shape. Right? I mean... So the Navy was very angry at me that morning. And... Uh, as I said, the Marine was all right. They're patching me up at the hospital. 
uh, for minor injuries, and they're reading new charges on me. And this is nothing significant in my life. New charges, that's just what happens in a guy's life like mine about every 90 days if you're living the way I'm living. So there's nothing significant about that. But the most significant thing that happened that morning is the Navy doctors prescribed this stuff called Anabuse for me. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> they use that here in Kentucky. I was now under orders to show up at sick bay every single morning before quarters, and the corpsman would put this little white pill on my tongue and make me sit there for a half an hour to make sure it actually ingested in my system. Over the next seven to ten days, I started to experience the most cunning, baffling, and powerful side of this thing we call alcoholism, and that is I had no alcohol in my system, and I was literally going insane. See, throughout my life, whenever people people that loved me or had authority over me always were trying to take alcohol away from me, they were constantly saying, you cannot have this. Can't you see? You can't have this. You know, and it. they would send me to psychiatrists or psychologists, and they would always try to get me to talk about how I felt. As if I knew. But what I, I wish I could have had the vocabulary at the time that I would have said this if I knew how to say it. I would have said, I agree. I know I'm, I'm on your side. I agree the price from my drinking is getting high. I also am not happy that the car is on fire either. I'm with you on that. But if you knew how I felt when I wasn't drinking, you wouldn't be asking me why I drink. Because there's only one thing worse than the price I'm paying for the drink, and that is the way that I feel when I'm not drinking. I didn't understand that that's actually alcoholism right there. I remember counting those days on that anabuse, just... It's been four days. And I'm on anabuse. Now it's been six days, and I'm on interviews. Now it's been eight days, six hours, and 15 minutes, and I'm on interviews. And I started to look around that ship. The other men, they're talking behind my back. All 300 of them. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way in AA? The only difference is that in AA, uh, we are talking behind your back. It's not an illusion. We're really doing it. Only with love and tolerance in northern Kentucky, I'm sure. On the 10th day, I just snapped and I went AWOL from my ship. I locked myself in in this little hotel room down in downtown San Diego, the Plaza Hotel. It's on 4th and Broadway. This would have been May of 1986. The reason I know that is paperwork, uh, you know. (laughs) That's when I went AWOL that time. May of 1986. uh, Locked myself in that little hotel. And the, the Plaza Hotel in May of 1986 cost $13 a night. They upgraded that whole area of downtown San Diego. The Plaza Hotel is still there. It is now $19 a night. (laughs) Locked myself in the little hotel room, and I had got a bottle of vodka and a shot glass. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bed looking at this little rickety end table that had the bottle of vodka and the shot glass there. 
And as I stared at the bottle of vodka in the shot glass, I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me a very stern warning about drinking on top of antabuse. When they had prescribed it for me, they had told me, son, you need to understand that if you drink on top of this antabuse, you will get one of two reactions. One reaction is you will get violently ill. The other reaction is you might die. I remember thinking, well... <clears throat> wonder which reaction I'm going to get. <laughs> I took one shot and nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure. And I took another shot. All of a sudden I felt tingly in the face. So I looked in this cracked little mirror that was in this hotel room and I was bright red, blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. Took another shot. <laughs> All of a sudden, I felt my heart go boom, boom, boom. Looked at my shirt. I was drenched in sweat. And then all of a sudden, I was like, <gasps> hyperventilating. <gasps> We're doing all right so far. <laughs> you guys are really sick if you think this is funny. <laughs> I actually have proof of that. You all look very, very... Uh, Put together tonight, most of you. Most of you. <laughs> but you can't, you're obviously not well if you're laughing at this. And here's the proof. I'm going to skip ahead a couple of years. I'm going to come back to that hotel room. Important stuff happened there. But I'm going to skip ahead a couple of years. Two years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I got an honorable discharge out of the Navy. And one of the, uh, how that happened is uh, uh, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and apparently, mer apparently merciful God and a personnelment that lost half my file. That's how that happened. <laughs> so I get an honorable discharge out of the Navy and uh, my first sponsor and his sponsor were real sticklers about that ninth step. And one of the amends that I was unable to make while I was still in the, in the, in the Navy was that my parents had paid for a bachelor's degree. Remember that? I didn't have one. I, had two, I was given two choices. I either had to pay my parents back every single nickel they had wasted on that, or I had to go get what they paid for in the first place. So that's how I wound, left San Diego, moved up to Los Angeles to go to college. And I took this uh, uh, bachelor's program in telecommunications and computer science. And uh, in, in the first couple of semesters, I had to take this business presentation class. It's like a speech class, right, for giving business presentations. So in the first couple of days of the speech class, the instructor was randomly pointing out students, throwing them up in front of the room one at a time. And from the back of the room, when each student was up there, he would shout out something. And you were supposed to talk on whatever, he talk, he, whatever topic he threw out there. Right? And the instructor was doing this just to see what he had to work with for the semester. And after about seven or eight students were thrown up there, he pointed at me. And I walked up to the front. And from the back of the room, he shouted out, talk about a bizarre situation in your life. <laughs> So I told them about drinking on top of antibiotics. <laughs> they did not react the way you guys did. <laughs> they were like... <laughs> there were a couple of guys in the back going, Woohoo! Party! <laughs> so anyway, I'm back in that hotel room. I'm red-faced. I'm hyperventilating. I'm sweating. And I took another shot, and up it came. My second sponsor was a man named Eddie Cochran. He uh, got sober in 1951, passed away with 47 years of sobriety in 1999. 
truly one of the pioneers of Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous, taught me a lot about what it means to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He used to call what happened to me next projectile regurgitation. This is a new level of puking I was unfamiliar with. Because we all know normal puking, right? We're out there in the middle of a good drunk. We get that little warning, right? A little sour taste in the back of the throat. Maybe a little bit comes up in the mouth and we go, mm-hmm. And we know, based upon, and we know based upon experience, we have 30 to 60 seconds to find a bathroom if there happens to be one. If we're driving, we've learned our lesson. Get the window down, right? When you blow it all over the dashboard, it gets into the ventilation system. It's really a, it's really a drag. But we get the warning. But here on the Anabuse, there is no warning. It's kind of like this Linda Blair spray across the room. Thank God the Plaza Hotel is the type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room with the bed. It's a design feature, I believe. Maybe to make convicts feel more at home upon release. I'm not really sure. But I found the magic of drinking on top of Anvius, and that is that if I would hang in there, and it's an important feature if you're going to drink on top of Anvius, you cannot half measure it, you must hang in there, oh, and don't die. You've you got to put those two things together if you're going to try drinking on top of Anvius. But with me, if I kept drinking and kept puking, kept drinking and kept puking for about an hour to an hour and a half, enough of the Anvius would kick out of my system and I would quit throwing up and I would just be left with red face, hyperventilating and sweating, and I'm pretty much all right with that. So I drank, I, I drank on top of Anabuse for the last seven months of my drinking. There's no, there's, uh, there's no other words to describe this other than desperation drinking. My second my last drunk, I was left for dead in a motel parking lot in an area of San Diego called National City. I was left in this pool of blood, and the next thing I knew is I came to on an operating table. Uh, you know that uh, when you come out of these uh, blackouts, you, you, know, you know, we kind of look around to evaluate good night, bad night. You know, do I know who's here? Uh, operating table gives an indicator of a bad night. <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm getting real close to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the way you guys described your coming out of blackouts was frustrating me a little bit. Because you guys were always telling stories of, I am just so grateful to be sober because now I wake up instead of coming to. I now know who's next to me. It was just so horrible. I would come out of this blackout and, oh, there'd be somebody oh, next to me. As if you were always the good-looking one. <laughs> just saying. See, I'd been coming too, and every once in a while I'd look next to me and go, whoa, cool, I like her. I, awesome. She would wake up and go, oh, not Carl, no! <laughs> My last night of drinking, I'm being let out of the San Diego jail. I'm being transferred from civilian authorities back to military authorities. There was always a process to do that. This morning, the handcuffs are extra tight. Uh, neck muscles are not working, and there's lots of people in uniforms that are angry. God, I hated those mornings. And they tried to bring me back to my ship, and uh, the, the shore patrol tried to bring me back to my ship, and that morning the officer's deck put his arm up and said, wrong answer. Orders have already been processed on this loser. Orders are 90 days in the brig, brig bad conduct discharge, or treatment. Now, as I, as I stood there in handcuffs, 
Apparently some sort of option was thrown out on the table. Now, I don't, I don't remember thinking, Oh, God, you're so good to a bum like me. I, I can't go on this way anymore. and I get to go to treatment. I, I don't remember that. It would have been more likely, I suppose, that I might have thought, Hey, if I just act like I want to do that treatment thing, maybe I can beat this rap too. That would have been more likely. I don't remember that either. I now know that it would not have mattered what I was thinking or feeling that morning because I was in handcuffs. And I, I don't know about your experience in handcuffs, but my experience uh, throughout my life in handcuffs was always the same. Whoever had me in handcuffs, never once did they ever turn to me and say, so what's your opinion on this matter? <laughs> right? When you're in handcuffs, you go where they say. And they took me up to this military treatment center up in the north end of San Diego, and when the doors were locked behind me, that's when they took the handcuffs off me, and there's no better symbol of what... what what society felt about how Carl Morris acts out there in the world without Alcoholics Anonymous. No doubt about it. So I'm going to do this 45-day treatment thing. 35 other men and women are showing up from various ships, base, and commands over the next couple of days, and we're all going to do this 45-day thing together. And the first couple of days, they are doing uh, medical checkups on us one at a time. They are doing, they're calling us in for information to find out what ship or base or command we had come from in order to get our file sent over. And they were doing group therapy. And in the group therapy session, they had a guy that I think he was new at his job. And we, no, none of us are talking. We're arms folded looking at the ground. And he's, he's giving us his best. I mean, he's got the, the whiteboard up there showing the progression of alcoholism and the family dynamics. And he's giving it all. And we're just... And he's getting more frustrated by the day. And somewhere, I think, late in the third day, this one guy, you know, nobody's talking. This one guy raised his hand. His name was, his name was Paco. And he raises his hand. He says, I'd like to say something. And the instructor goes, yes, Paco. What, got all excited because somebody wanted to say something. Yes, Paco, what would you like to say? And Paco said, I hear that I'm supposed to be rigorously honest with you guys if I'm going to do this staying sober thing. And I want you guys to know that Paco's not my real name. Paco is just a name I've always used uh, whenever, since I've been a young teenager whenever things look like trouble and the other day when I got here this looked like trouble <laughs> but you're going to find out anyway when my file gets here in a couple of days that my real name is Randy will you guys call me Randy from now on now all of us kind of go oh, yeah, whatever nice to meet you Randy <laughs> but this assistant facilitator got really excited and said oh my god there's a first breakthrough of any honesty of any of you SOBs Later that afternoon, they gathered us all up again, and they, they got, uh, one of the instructors got to the front and said, Randy! And Randy marched up to the front, and they had made a gold name tag that said Randy. And they slapped it on his chest, and then we were all informed that whenever staff was not around, Randy's in charge. <laughs> and Randy loved his new job, right? If you don't make your bed right, Randy's all over you. If you're smoking a cigarette outside a window at midnight, Randy's on you, right? On the seventh day in this place, they took us all to our first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. At least it was my first meeting. All I know is that it, uh, we, I'd been in this place for seven days. And over the 1MC, it's like an intercom system through the barracks. They said, civilian closed, parking lot, 6 p.m. So we're all out there, and about five or six white vans pulled up. And, you know, six or seven of us got into each van, and each van took off to a different meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the van I was in came to a meeting. Uh, uh, they, pick, they picked large meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous so that we would not dominate the, the, the meeting. And we would just sit along the back and watch Alcoholics Anonymous. Very grateful that that treatment center 
understood that, that they were taking us to where the long-term solution would be, that they were not under an illusion that, that they were going to fix us. Every night they sent us out to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous so that we might see a glimpse of what our, our, our only chance in the future. And I've got to tell you, I, was not, I love my friends that, that have a lot of interactions with AA as in they didn't understand or, you know, it was, that, you know, I, I get it. I get I, whatever it was about me, but I, I was surrendered. And I heard you guys like, I mean, I sat there in the back right from the get-go like, oh, my God, they know. They know. They know. Now, if you would have seen me there and nudged me and said, so what is it, kid, that they know that you think you know? I would have said, I don't know. <laughs> but I knew that you knew. And what it was is those people, and I still hear it all over the country, all over the world, people were talking about alcoholism from their heart. And there is something that happens to another alcoholic when they are willing that it sings this song that, uh, that I, I, I don't think we hear anywhere else. And there's this magic of one alcoholic sharing with another that happens nowhere else. And so I identified right off the bat. But as much as I identified right off the bat, I also got very confused like on the second or third meeting I went to, because everybody, I don't hear this very often anymore, but back in the 80s it was very common. At this meeting, people were talking about something called a drug of choice. People were saying, well, my drug of choice is. And somebody else would say, well, my drug of choice is. And I'm sitting in the back of the meeting going, oh, for Christ's sake, was I supposed to be choosing out there? Do they want me to choose now? What are they talking about? So the next morning, I'm back at the treatment center. I asked the counselor who'd been assigned to us. I go, Mary, last night in the meeting, they're talking about something called a drug of choice. What on earth do they mean by that? And she said, Carl, let's play a game. And that kind of startled me and, and worried me because I knew what she was saying. She was saying, pay attention. And it was hard to pay attention because I don't know about if you, any of you, I'm sure a lot of you have been in detox. They give you that cup of pills, right? They give you that cup of pills so you don't throw the floppy fish and destroy everybody's day. Sirens go off. Everybody runs in different directions. The white coats come out and it interrupts things, right? So they put you on that cup of pills for detox. But if you've ever been on those things, you know what I'm talking about. Your field of vision about like this is just fine. But there's dancing squiggly things over here. And when you turn to see what it is, it's now it's over here. So you're, do you're doing a lot of... So if the treatment van pulls up at your home group, and these guys are doing this a lot, that's what's happening. So, so when she said, Carl, we'll figure out your drug of choice, let's play a game, I went, okay. And she said, imagine this, imagine I came into this room, Carl, she said, imagine I came in this room and I had a tray. And on that tray I had a bottle of Jack Daniels, an ounce of cocaine, and an ounce of tie sticks. Which one would you take? I started to drool immediately. Oh, 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 I take them all. And she started to snap her fingers. Settle down. Settle down. Settle down, Carl. Play the game. You can't have them all. You can only have one. Which one would you take? And I said, well, if I can only have one, Mary, I guess I'd take the ounce of cocaine. She said, ah, maybe cocaine is your drug of choice. Do you understand now? And I said, no. <laughs> She said, what's the problem? I said, well, Mary, the only reason I take the ounce of cocaine over the other two is, well, I take that ounce of cocaine, I get the hell out of here, and I'd sell two eight balls. <laughs> I would now have enough money for a quarter pound of tie sticks and a case of Jack Daniels. <laughs> so, 
Now, the only reason I bring that up is to bring up a very important aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're new or fairly new, and that's sobriety date. Notice I said sobriety date, not dates. There's only one sobriety date. You guys run across sometimes people's misperceptions? We do in L.A. all the time. Oh, well, my, my drinking sobriety date is January 4th. My pot clean date was May 3rd. Oh, oh I blew my methamphetamine date last night. I was, in, I was in Walmart all night long. Need anybody to work on your car? No, no. Funniest thing I ever heard about sobriety date. Same scenario. Saw this guy around my home group. Went up, hey, good to see you. How long do you got? And he said, well, I had 90 days, but I drank last night, so now I have 89 days. Okay. I almost had to call my sponsor, for God's sake. I think that kind of falls into the same category uh, as being down in Mexico, looking at the tequila going, would that affect my U.S. sobriety date? Yes. Sobriety dates are international. Just a little information for the new guy, that's all. So anyway, after 45 days, going to let us all out. That's what the orders were. And uh, we're going to be let out on a Friday. And on the Wednesday before that Friday, they gathered all 35 of us up and they put us in this room. And we're sitting there looking at each other. And then the side door, just like that, side door opens up and the biggest, meanest counselor in the place walks in. And he's a Marine. And that day he is in his full dress uniform. And i got to tell you, a Marine in his full dress uniform is a very impressive, very intimidating sight. And we had a tile floor and he marched across that floor and you could hear the <coughs> as he walked across and he came up to this podium and he leaned across, leaned into us and stared at us. Didn't say a word. It felt like forever. It was probably 30 seconds. <laughs> and then he finally spoke. He said, you 35 have been through one of the finest treatment centers in the world for alcoholism and drug addiction. This treatment center has been here for many, many years. And over the years, our statistics have shown us that out of you 35, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. Many of you will die, go insane, wind up in prison. Nice little exit pep talk, don't you think? <laughs> then he said, many of you will relapse once, twice, maybe 20 times, and then make it back into long-term sobriety. But according to this treatment center statistics, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. Man, if you thought it was quiet before he said that, you could have heard a pin drop now. The only thing you could hear was me going, shit. Because <laughs> I knew if only one of us was going to make it, it was not going to be me. We all knew who it was going to be. It's going to be Randy over here. <laughs> He's the poster boy of the treatment center by now, for God's sake. So on this Friday afternoon, they're letting us all out, and we're transferred back to our ship's base and commands in, in various different ways. But there was about four or five of us that had been arrested in vehicles the night before we were thro thrown into treatment. We were all informed that our vehicles had been put into an impound lot for the last 45 days and that we were to wait on the front doorstep of the treatment center and our vehicles would be brought to us sooner or later. So I'm standing there with four or uh, five other guys. We're kind of looking at each other, kind of shifty, and you feel treated? I don't know. What does that feel like? <laughs> All of a sudden, one of the guys points, and there's, car, there's a car coming across the parking lot. And he goes, is that Randy in that car? 
We look, sure enough, it's Randy. As he got a little closer, one of the other guys says, he's drinking already. Randy's got himself a bottle. He's polishing it off. And he rolls up right in front of us. He rolls down the window and goes, ha, 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 throws the empty right at our feet, gives us all the finger and drives right off. I guess his name was Paco again. I don't know. The next thing that I remember of that day is I showed up at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not know where else to go. Um, I showed up at the 6 o'clock gong show meeting in Pacific Beach. And that meeting is probably about the size of this section here and maybe half of that section. And I'm sitting in the back of that meeting and the truth about my life is I'm 45 days without a drink. I've got a lot of information. I'm physically feeling better than I have felt since I've been a young teenager. But there had been no spiritual awakening, spiritual experience, or even a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. And what was even more dangerous than that is that I did not know I needed one. Which way was my life going to go that night? One guy that night operating on his primary purpose found me sitting in the back. I'm sure there are many other people that were operating on their primary purpose at that meeting that night, but this guy decided to lurk around the back. And this guy came up to me and he said, hey, never seen you here before. What are you doing? I didn't think quick enough to lie to him. He kind of startled me too. And if I would have thought for one more second, I would have lied to him, but I accidentally told him the truth. And I said, I don't know, man. I just got out of a Navy treatment center a couple hours ago. I don't know what I'm doing. This guy's eyes went, bing, big smile went across his face. He looked like he had just hit the jackpot. At the break of the meeting, he's like fighting his friends off. He's mine, 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 my newcomer. I didn't know you mark your newcomers around here, for God's sake. But there was something going on in that guy's life that particular night that made him especially glad to meet me. This guy's girlfriend had left him the night before for one of his friends in his home group. So he was wondering what he was going to do with his weekend, homicide, suicide, get loaded or grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this guy was insane over this woman, flat out insane. In between each of these meetings, and this barrage of meetings he took me to, in between each meeting, he'd throw me in the passenger side of his car, and he'd start driving, and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of those AA radar cars that just made it to the next meeting, I guess. And he'd be yelling at me. You got a good means, You got to read the book. You got to get sponsored. Damn her! Got to read the He's like spitting on me. It's like, oh, man. Now, I didn't know it, but I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup is what I was getting. But I'm so very glad that that guy, that night, in his pain, was a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, had taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and therefore, he understood that the solution to his pain was out of self, out of self, out of self. I am so glad that that guy that night in his pain, was not out, not at home underneath his covers, whining into his sponsor's answer machine. If you're 25 years old or younger, an answer machine is this box that used to sit on the <laughs> kitchen counter. <clears throat> so glad he was not at home underneath his, co underneath his covers, whining into his sponsor's answer machine. Sponsor, where are you? Fix me! Give me the golden answer. So glad he understood that he needed to drag my sorry butt around. 
I, he, he didn't know whether I would stay sober or not. He was just using me as a prop in his weekend so that he might not do something really stupid. By going to so many meetings in the same area of town with that guy over that weekend, I learned something really valuable about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when we're new. By going to so many meetings in the same area of town, I saw other people that went to multiple meetings that weekend. Now, I didn't see anybody else doing 18 meetings, just me and that guy. <laughs> but I saw other people that were at two or three meetings over that weekend. And what I learned about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when we're new, I'm going to correlate it to a football game. Now, a football team is out there on the field for one reason and one reason only, to win the game. And how do they win that game? They huddle up, they make a plan, and they do one play. Then they huddle up again, they make another plan, and they do one play. That's exactly what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the game around here is one day without a drink, you're a big winner. And how do we do that one day? We run in here and we huddle up. And we go, remember, we're bodily and mentally different from our fellows. Great! And we go out there and we try a little of this. And we try a little of that. And we run right back in here. After that weekend, I got back to my ship, and the one other sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous was waiting for me. His name was Bob W. He had 14 months. He was two years younger than me, but he had 14 more months than me. So grateful that the one other sober guy on that ship was an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous, that he wasn't somebody who hadn't been to a meeting in nine months, that when he heard I was coming out of the same treatment center he had gotten out of, that he had to go, what do I do with him? He was living an overwhelmingly valuable way of life because he was an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had a sponsor, he had a home group, he was working steps, he was now going to work with others, he had commitments. And all he had to do to effectively help save my life was stick his hand out and say, come do what I'm doing. That's a really valuable way of life. You tell me, who else on this planet, what level of education, appointment, or recognition do I need, does an individual need to get, and from who, to be able to reach out to the dying and say, come do what I'm doing, and they can effectively help save their life? Nowhere but here. This is an amazing gift. doesn't always feel that way, does it? Many days, another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, my God, that old-timer is telling that same story again. God, I, I will never forget the first time I noticed an old-timer was telling the same story in one week. I was sitting there with my sponsor and my sponsor's sponsor, right? My sponsor had 14 more months than me, and he was 23 years old. I was 25 years old, and his sponsor was like 55 years old with like 30 years, some old guy, exactly what I am now, right? <laughs> and we're sitting there, and I, an old-timer's telling the same story on a Wednesday night that I heard him on Monday, and I, I whispered to my sponsor, telling the same story again. My God. My sponsor's sponsor reaches past my sponsor and hits me right upside the head. Bang! <laughs> and he says, he's not talking to you tonight. And I go, huh? He goes, he's talking to the new guy that apparently you're unaware is in the meeting. And I literally had this experience of, there's other people in AA? <laughs> Our ship had to go out to sea for an extended period of time when I was about six or seven months sober. 
Prior to that, we were just going out for short little stints, and I uh, was hanging in the San Diego area, going to lots and lots of meetings. Meeting, 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 coffee, 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 meeting, 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 coffee, coffee, coffee. See a girl, ah, meeting, 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 coffee, 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 meeting, meeting. <laughs> but you might find me either in my rack on the ship at midnight, or maybe if I had gotten a hotel room and after the late night meeting, hoarding my gut sometimes. Five, six, seven months sober. Damn it. What's the matter with me? Why do I feel this way? Dying of untreated alcoholism, going to lots and lots of meetings. Ship had to go out to sea for an extended period of time. My first sponsor, Bob, uh, made me meet him in the aft end of the ship, down in the bottom of the engine room in this little battery shop. And the first every night at 6:30, and I'd meet. I met him there the first night. He had that blue book in his hands, and he tossed it down on the counter. Hey, I've been hounding about it for months. Have you read it? And I said something like, "Ooh, sure. There's like how it works. Uh, we antagonist uh, some doc." <laughs> Some doctor has an opinion about something. And once again, only 14 months ahead of me, he started to save my life. But he was only trying to save his own. But by doing that, he literally saved mine. He opened up the book and started to read. When he was tired, I would read. And he shared what little he knew from what his sponsor might have just told him last month. And he would try to relay that to me. And when I look back on it, I, it looks, it, to me, it, it really, it feels like Alcoholics Anonymous in its purest form. Two men in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on, a, on the USS Cushing, a, a Spruance-class destroyer, right way down in the engine room in a little battery shot. Two guys, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Two men trying to have an experience, even though neither one of us knew what that experience would be, but we both had it. We both had a fundamental change in our attitude and outlook, although we wouldn't have known it at the time. But years later, I look back and it happened. It happened. And it's a funny thing about spiritual awakenings. You don't even know you have it until much later when you look back, when you feel this way, and you go, how did I ever survive feeling that way? You don't ever go, oh, spiritual awakening, here it is. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen that way. Another thing that I learned that was vitally important to my sobriety uh, at that point was, if I have found this solution, I have a responsibility to show up. Because, as I said right at the beginning, there is a magic that happens of when one alcoholic shares with another that happens nowhere else on the planet. Only we can help us. So if I've gotten this gift, i got to stay. And how I learned that magic of one alcoholic sharing with another, I will never forget my first sponsor, Bob, and I would often split. Uh, uh, when the ship would pull into port, we would often split a hotel room, and then we'd go out and try to find the AA meetings in whatever town we were in. This particular time, we're in Victoria, British Columbia. We went and split a hotel room, and then we went out to a, a, the local AA clubhouse. After the meeting, Bob says, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to head back to the hotel room. I stayed out with the AAers, went to another meeting, out to coffee. I don't know. But an hour and a half later or so, I come back to the hotel room. And Bob has found a, another guy from our ship named Blair. And, I mean, Blair was, I mean, he's, he's got vomit all over him. He's like, he, I mean, he is that kind of drunk, right? And Bob has him on my bed. <clears throat> and he's got him propped up against the headboard with an end table and a chair and a pillow. And Bob has the big book and he's reading, we are more than 100 men and women. That, uh... And I'm looking at this scene thinking this is ridiculous. Like I said, Blair's like, oh. he doesn't even know where he's at. Right? Bob's wasting his time. But anyway, I throw my 10 cents in. Then we carry him back to the ship to make sure he's safe and get him into the rack and... So last we hear of Blair for weeks. 
Next, next we hear from Blair. It's uh, weeks later. We're back in port in San Diego, and it's 3 a.m. in the morning, and I'm in my rack on the ship, and all of a sudden, oh, we go, we go. And I pull the curtain back, and it's Bob. He goes, Blair's on the Coronado Bridge. we got to go get him. Apparently, Blair has tried to drink. He's tried not to drink over the last few weeks. He's now at the jump, jumping off place. He's on the Coronado Bridge. If you don't know about the Coronado Bridge, it's such a popular suicide spot that they have suicide hotline phones about every 100 yards, right? just in case you change your mind. They are, they're hoping your feet are still on the bridge when you do change your mind. And Blair had gotten onto the suicide hotline phone. And this is apparently what he was telling the very well-meaning, highly educated suicide hotline counselor on the other end. He was saying, I will only talk to Bob W. (laughs) So the suicide hotline counselor goes, who's Bob W.? And Blair was saying, it's anonymous. So she went and got her supervisor, another well-meaning suicide hotline counselor, and they knew how to do this. Good cop, bad cop, firing uh, confusing questions, found out he's from the Navy and what ship he's from. So they just take a stab in the dark, and they call down to the quarterdeck of our ship at 3 a.m. in the morning. And they go, you know, we don't got a last name, but is there a Bob W. on that ship? Now, my first sponsor, Bob, would guard your anonymity at the level of that ship, but he never guarded his own, so he could be of service at any time. So the guy that answered the phone at 3 a.m. said, yeah, 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 Mr. 12 Steps. We know all about him. <laughs> so they go down to get Bob. Bob comes and gets me. Car, we go ahead. So I hop into Bob's car. We start driving down to the Coronado Bridge, and we're driving along, and Bob says, Carl, get the big book out of the glove box. Bone up on working with others. Like, And then he says, oh, forget it. We're going to wing it tonight. (laughs) We get down to the base of the Coronado Bridge, and everything that San Diego County has available for a situation like this is there. The fire department is there. The police department is there. The paramedics are there. The on-duty psychologists, they're all there. So this fireman who seems to be in charge, as we're walking across this big, empty area, and we're walking up on this emergency team, uh, the fireman who seems to be in charge has this little speakerphone thing, and he looks at us, and he goes, is one of you Bob W.? And Bob goes, yeah, yeah, it's me. He goes, well, we've been talking to him for an hour, and he ain't budging, but here, give it a shot. And Bob grabs it and goes, Blair? And you can hear on the other end, Bob, is that you? <laughs> and Bob says, yes, Blair, it's me, and I'll get the hell down from that bridge. And you hear, okay. <laughs> one alcoholic can affect another alcoholic like no one else can. Don't forget that. You have an amazing gift. Two years sober, got an honorable discharge. I told you about that. Moved up to uh, Covina to go to school. It's just in, in the, Covina is right in the heart of Los Angeles County. And uh, through having to make amends, I was still push starting the same car that I got sober in. 68 Volkswagen, hole in floorboard, had to push start it. And I'm puttering on up the Los Angeles freeways with everything that I own in my car. And I started thinking. Two years sober, I'm fresh out of the Navy. I need a life. I need a life. I deserve a life. I've heard people in AA talk about having lives. I need one of those. I'm going to get one. I'm going to be going to school. I'm going to be working. I'm not going to have much time going to the ANA meetings, uh, but uh, I'll stop by when I get a chance. If things get crazy, I, I, so I'll find out where the meetings are in case I need one when I get up there. And I pulled into this place 
the, the San Gio Valley uh, AA Clubhouse. And uh, first impression, I was very discouraged because the parking lot's flat. When you're pushed out in your car, one of the tools for living is you're always looking for a little incline. <laughs> Went into a noon meeting, and this man making coffee. My, my, ship, uh, my first sponsor had two more years to do in the Navy, and the ship was going to Asia. I, he, we both had decided I was going to have to get another sponsor. But that was not in the forefront of my mind. My forefront of my mind is, get a life. And I go into this noon meeting, and this man making coffee had this medallion that said 1951. I knew what that meant. That meant he was 10 years sober when I was born. And uh, he, he saw me, and he goes, hey, never seen you here before. Same thing the guy said to me fresh out of treatment. This time I had a much better answer. I said, sir, that's right. Uh, I'm two years sober. I'm fresh out of the United States Navy. I'm glad to be here. Nice to see your meeting hall. Uh, but you won't see me very often. I'm uh, going to be busy. I am going, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be working on a bachelor's degree in less than three years and I'm going to be going to school, uh, going to school and, uh, and working. And, uh, I'll stop by when I get a chance, but don't worry if you don't see me. And Eddie just went, <laughs> he said, Oh, son, school and work are wonderful things, but that's what we do in between meetings. What he was really telling me is one of the mag- most important concepts of long-term sobriety comfortably. And what he was really telling me is, son, you need to live in Alcoholics Anonymous and visit the world instead of trying to hash it out there in the world and visiting Alcoholics Anonymous. (sighs) I know, I know, somebody that's new going, oh, no, live in Alcoholics Anonymous, that sounds cultish. (laughs) I know, and people that love you have said, we're glad you're sober, but don't get too involved in AA. We hear it's a cult. You guys hearing that? Your uncle tell you that or anything? I can disprove the whole cult factor like that. A cult tells you, give up all your worldly possessions, quit talking to your family, and come in here with us. That's what a cult says. Give up all your worldly possessions, quit talking to your family, and come in here with us. AA says, uh, we know you don't have a damn thing left. It's gone. And your family won't talk to you. Come in here with us. We'll teach you how to talk to your family. And maybe in between meetings you'll get a few things back. We're not sure. This proves it in our... Very first thing this man told me that I needed to do to live in Alcoholics Anonymous apart new people in my car. And I objected at first. My God, I've got a, I've got a hole in the floor, but I've got to push start this thing. He said, put new people in your car. Your life will get better. I thought, okay, he's 10 years sober when I was born. I'll do it. And the very first night that I did that, I realized this man had not lied to me. My life got better the very first night that I put new guys in that car. The new guys could push start my car. <laughs> he didn't say how much better. He just said better. i got to tell you, I have found a life in between meetings that I did not know was available for a guy like me. I didn't know that life could have this type of meaning and purpose. I didn't know that I could feel this way about other people. I did not know that I could love other people the way I've learned to love other people. I had no idea that was available. Seventeen years sober, I got married. We have two beautiful kids. I know you've never heard about this in AA, but we got divorced. Um, (laughs) 
But we had a real important project ahead of us because we, we tried our best and it was not, we could not live together. But we both loved those kids and we had to become good co-parents one way or another. And I got to tell you, she is a very good mother. I could not be more proud of that woman for being as good of a mother as she is. We've been divorced for eight years and she does a spectacular job. And I have found a level of love for those kids that I did. Whew. I've ne- it's like I met who I would die for. Their names are Madison and Ryan. They're 10 and 12 years old. And I literally, it feels like I've met who I would die for. I, I've, I've never felt that way about other people. I mean, you know, Pat and Dave, the, you know, I, I love them, yeah, right? But if we go out to Starbucks later and some guy comes in wielding a gun and says, one of you's got to go, I say, have you met my friend Pat? <laughs> like that. But if it was my kids, it's like, I wouldn't even think twice. I would never trade my kids for the first drink. The level of love is profound and deep. I would never trade my kids for the first drink. However, I am alcoholic. Although I would never trade them for the first drink, I would trade them for the second drink like that. So therefore, there is nothing more important than me staying in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous if I want to be a good dad. And remember when I told you at the beginning that there's lots of things in my life that are really important to me, that I succeed and or fail at. Being a good dad is at the forefront of my mind every single day. But I don't even get a chance to try without you people. So when you ask me to do stuff, I say yes. i got to tell you, being... Having commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you feel you've got commitments and they are not inconvenient, you do not have commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be here with you this weekend, and uh, I get to come back in a few months for your, uh, what's it called? Buckeye Roundup. Roundup. You guys are having me back. It's kind of silly that you did that that close. I'll make up a new story by then. I won't. You'll forget about me by then anyway. You guys are self-centered to the core. So I'll be halfway through and you go, oh, that home. Really, it's been a privilege being in here and have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you very much.